Okay. We will be in 1 Thessalonians 5. You want to turn there in your Bible and follow along. We're going to wrap up the first letter of Thessalonians today. And like I said, we'll start the second letter this week as we continue our journey through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Uh, and they are, however far apart they were written, they are definitely tied together in theme. And so we'll sort of carry that through into the next one. But for today, uh, each of us has a native language. A language we learn as infants and toddlers from our parents and family members and close family friends and neighbors, anyone in close proximity to us as we grow up. We learn it by listening and interacting. And a child is hungry and the parent says bottle or milk as they supply the need. And as the child grows, they will point out objects that are increasingly difficult linguistically. Beginning at bottle, we may continue in, in time to progress to container, uh, or more specific names for what we want, like juice or water or things like that. By the time we're teenagers, we can form complex sentences with the words that we have learned. And as adults, we can use our language to communicate all kinds of things, from the simple and mundane to the profound and perplexing. But when it comes to learning a secondary language that no one around us speaks with any regularity, a language we may learn in a classroom, we don't begin the same way. Instead, we begin by learning the rules for that language as we learn some of the basic words. And I remember using flashcards with the foreign word on one side and the English word on the other, trying to memorize them, and then I'd drill through those things. Uh, and at the same time, I was consistently trying to remember all the different rules that govern how to write or speak that language. And I've taken a bunch. I've taken German, Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin over the years. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm multilingual, so don't carry it that far. Uh, but I can read them and understand them to some degree. Uh, and it's, it's been true for all of them. You learn the rules, then you apply the rules. And while this governed my use of these languages at first, in time, I no longer had to think about all the rules. They still existed, they're still there, but daily interaction in the language itself made the rules merely a background reminder. And what was once foreign to me became sort of second nature. And I was able to read and speak and understand without the flashcards all the time or things like that. And this is basically what Paul was doing with the Thessalonian believers here. They had grown up with the Pax Romana and all the trappings of empire. Their native tongue was the language of Caesar. And Paul was teaching them something new. He had taught them the basic rules of citizenship in God's kingdom when he was with them. And now as he brought uh, this first letter to a close having reminded them of the more profound ideas of this new kingdom, he wanted them to interact with it daily, to practice the rules of this foreign kingdom until they became merely a background reminder as their daily lives 
shifted from the kingdom of Caesar to the kingdom of God. Especially as he concluded the letter, Paul wanted to connect all the dots of how this all worked and what it looked like so that the shift that began when he was with them would continue now that he wasn't. That's what we'll be looking at this morning in the text. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, and hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. So as we dig into these verses, we need to keep in mind the larger context of what Paul is writing about. The idea of the battle of the two kingdoms and the return of Jesus, the one true, rightful, and risen Lord. And in a way, Paul was teaching these believers the new language of the kingdom of God. He had taught them the rules for this kingdom when he was with them. And in writing this letter, he wanted these believers to become so immersed in this new way of life that the rules became part of the background. And he knew it wouldn't be easy. These believers had grown up in the Roman Empire under the Pax Romana, and they'd been raised in the language of Caesar as their native tongue, as I said. And Paul wanted them to shift their entire way of life to become immersed in the things of the kingdom of God so that they could learn this new language and adapt their lives accordingly. He began his concluding summary by telling them to respect those who were over them in the Lord. And in doing so, he used two important Greek words to express his thoughts. Uh, the first is proestomenus which is a compound word formed by the prefix pro, which means in front of, and then the word histomai, which means to stand. And this was a word used of leaders as being the ones who stood out front, with the connotation being that they were worthy of imitating or patterning one's life after. Which brings up the question, who are we imitating? Who are we patterning our life after? And we might be tempted to answer Jesus right off the bat, but the truth is that we have all learned what it means to be Christian in much the same way as we learned the language that we use. 
by watching, listening, and imitating other believers in our lives. So the question remains, who are we patterning our lives after? And to take it a step further, did they get it right? I don't mean were they perfect and sinless. We all know that uh, we know that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, we also know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So forgiveness is a big part of this as well. But what I mean is, were the people we patterned our lives after worthy of it? Were they standing out in front as leaders in this sense? And the other word Paul used here is kopiaho, which means exhausting work, as in to work until worn out. The people Paul wanted these uh, Thessalonian believers to pattern their lives after were the ones not only standing out front, but they were working for the sake of the kingdom until they were worn out. Like putting in a hard day's work out in the sun and then coming in after the sun is set, completely exhausted, but with a good feeling about it. In a sense, Paul was saying that what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he said, Be imitators of me, as I imitate Christ. He wanted them to respect and appreciate those who led them to the point of patterning their lives after them. So what does this look like in our time? And more specifically in our immediate setting, right here. What kind of leaders are we following and are they worth following? Their lives look like Jesus. Are they all about service and sacrifice? As a stark contrast to those who were leading and working until they were worn out, Paul then told these believers to, to be at peace among themselves and to admonish the idol. And we've talked about being at peace with each other quite a bit, so I'm not going to say too much about that this morning, other than to mention that as citizens of God's kingdom, we are part of a family, and it's vital that we embody that in all our dealings. But what about the idol? What did Paul mean there? When we think of the word idle, we might think of someone lazy, like a car stuck in neutral. Someone who doesn't do much, especially if they are supposed to be doing certain things. In the Greek, the word Paul used goes a step further. The word is ataktos, and it means out of order, or disorderly, or unruly. In other words, someone or something that is not doing what they should be doing. In context, Paul clearly meant anyone who wasn't immersed in the way of the kingdom of God. Anyone who had been shown the way of Jesus and this new kingdom, but had just sort of put it in neutral. If we look at that in terms of the larger picture Paul was painting of the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus, it becomes clear that he was targeting folks who thought that the imminent return of Jesus meant they didn't actually have to do anything. And there's a stark contrast here between those working until they are worn out and those who are just coasting. Paul was warning these believers that coasting was out of order. That it was not in line with what being a citizen of God's kingdom was all about. And it still isn't. 
What's really interesting is that this contrast can still be seen in the church. There are those who work diligently for the sake of the kingdom, serving others and sacrificing for their sake. And then there are those who have convinced themselves that Jesus is returning soon and they can just coast until he gets here. If we think back to the imagery Paul used, the imagery of parousia, a Caesar coming to town, and all that language that he used, that royal visit language, what becomes clear is that we are meant to look after and take care of what has been entrusted to us. And it's our calling as citizens of God's kingdom to continue working until we are worn out to make life better for those who live in and around where we live. Whether it's this town or the surrounding area, whatever that means, until the Lord arrives. And that doesn't mean we are working for salvation. Those are two different things. We are working because of salvation. And Paul echoed this in Ephesians 2.10, writing that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're called to be a part of something that is alive and dynamic, something actively immersed in living like Jesus on a daily basis and having an impact on the world around us. And we can't possibly do that from the couch or the recliner. Paul went on to tell them that they should be encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak to be patient with all of them. This is one of the clearest distinctions between the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God that he's drawing out right here. In the kingdom of Rome, the faint-hearted were considered cowards and they were left behind. The weak were left to fend for themselves. Nobody watched after any of them. It was sort of the survival of the fittest type atmosphere. But the kingdom of God was taking a very different approach because in God's kingdom, all the citizens are family and look after each other. Those who fit these descriptions weren't left for dead. They were helped and carried along by the faith and effort of the others. Like medics in a time of war, believers are supposed to be out in the middle of the fray helping whoever we are able. And it's not supposed to be a hassle. We are supposed to be doing this with patience, which means it's a long-term kind of thing. Living this way means making an investment that probably will not show its yield on this side of Jesus' return. But when he does return, the effort made for the kingdom will have been worth it. Nothing offered to God will be wasted. Which is exactly what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, Whatever we do for the sake of the kingdom will remain once Jesus returns and his kingdom is finally realized on earth as it is in heaven. When it comes to exercising the fruit of the Spirit, such as patience, we are never wasting our time, no matter what it may seem like to us in the moment. 
And after listing things they should be doing for others, Paul went on in verses 16 through 18 to list three things these believers should be doing personally. And he did this because serving and sacrificing for others can be exhausting, and those who do so will need to be refreshed. The three things he mentioned are a believer's means of experiencing that refreshing. He said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. At face value, all three of these things are seemingly impossible, right? Who could possibly rejoice regardless of what is going on? How can anyone possibly pray without ceasing? Or what would giving thanks in every circumstance even look like? I don't know anyone who lives exactly this way. Of all the leaders I know, of all those who stand out in front in the faith, I still don't know any that have this nailed down. But as we already noted, the point isn't that we have to be perfect. The point is that we have been saved and that our salvation ensures we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, guiding us and empowering us to live this new kingdom way. These three things are a means of refreshment, sort of like plugging in your phone to the charger and getting the battery back up. They are like drinking water in the desert. None of us will get very far without them. They provide for us as we connect with the source of all provision through joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Now, a while back when we studied joy, we defined it as the awareness of God's grace, which produces a deep-rooted contentment, which is grounded in our relationship with Jesus as Savior and King, that transcends whatever we happen to be experiencing at the time. We also saw that joy is not a result or a reaction to anything going on around us. Instead, it is an act of defiance in the face of fear and pain, an act of rebellion against the darkness of the broken world, a revolt against the corrupt power systems that rule by inflicting fear and pain and violence and death, an uprising against all the forces of evil, injustice, and oppression in the world, like those of Rome or any other kingdom of men. Joy is the force of the Holy Spirit within us, opening our eyes to the bigger picture, the future promise, and the ultimate reality. So when Paul said rejoice always, this is what he meant. The second thing he mentioned is prayer, which is something far too often understood as a means of asking God for what we want, sort of along the lines of asking Santa Claus what we want for Christmas. But prayer is so much more than that. Prayer can be offering God praise. Prayer can be crying out to God in distress or pain. Prayer can be asking God difficult questions. Prayer can even be silence or meditation. As we read in Psalm 119.15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Basically, it's any way we connect with God, whether we bow our heads and close our eyes and fold our hands or not. If we are reaching out to God, it's prayer. That's what that is. And when we consider it in these terms, it's a lot easier to lean into the idea 
of praying without ceasing as always reaching out to connect with God. Third, Paul told these believers to give thanks in all circumstances. And we've talked quite a bit about this as well. We live in a culture built on the bedrock of have it your own way. But when we step into the kingdom of God, everything changes. And one of the key ways to stay grounded is to learn how to be thankful no matter what. It's almost like the language of the kingdom. And the truth is that it could always be better, right? Whatever we're going through, whatever life is giving us, but it could also always be worse. Either way, be thankful. For everything from simple stuff like a sunrise or sunset to deeper things like the relationship we get to enjoy with our Creator. No matter what else is going on, Jesus is there, and Jesus never changes. And that's an incredibly comforting thought, especially in these crazy times, and one for which we can be truly thankful. In typical fashion, Paul then offered a blessing as a benediction and if he were right there with them, blessing them sort of at the end of a meeting, that's what this was like. Uh, like the blessing that I offer at the end of our services. And on this blessing particularly, he reiterated what he had already written in chapter 3, 13, verse 13, where he said in essence uh, that it was this hope for these believers that they be sanctified and set apart for the set apart, ready and waiting for the return of Jesus. This goes back to the idea of the two kingdoms and the transformation that would take place in the life of someone who placed their trust in Jesus instead of Caesar. The person who would be set apart for citizenship in the kingdom of God. Sort of like when a person moves from one country to another where they speak a different language and the culture is totally different. In order to find their place in this new country, the person needs to learn the language and adapt to some extent to the culture. And the kingdom of God is not a kingdom we are born into. It's a kingdom we immigrate to. A place we move to at some point in our lives. And when we do, we need to learn its language and its culture because it's very different from our own. As we first arrive in the kingdom of God, we begin to learn the rules of the language and culture. We are baptized and brought into the fellowship of believers. That's sort of some of the language that's used. We are taught things like the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. We learn about the cross and the empty tomb, and we pick up words like forgiven and redeemed. We begin to take the Lord's Supper with other believers. And these are some of the basic transitions that take place. Even for those who were born into sort of Christian families, there came a point when things shifted from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. And it's typically marked by what we call a profession of faith. The longer we're part of God's kingdom, the more we should look like we belong there. We shouldn't need to be reminded of all the rules because the Holy Spirit in us has transformed us and helped us to adapt to the language and culture. We should fit in with the other, other citizens of God's kingdom. That's why Paul wanted everyone to be at peace with each other. We should all be in the process of being sanctified, being set apart from this world. 
Not because we are better than anyone else. We're not. We know that all of us are in the same boat as far as our standing before God in, this term, in terms of this. But we are being made different. Being formed for a new and better kingdom than any of the ones on this world. And as we are adapting to our new kingdom, we are supposed to be leaning into it and opening our minds and our hearts to the Holy Spirit so that we can be sanctified and set apart. And Paul tied all these together in this passage, especially in this benediction blessing. And then he moved on to his final thoughts. And normally, such letters would have uh, just a couple of short, cheerful thoughts at the end uh, or a message for some particular person in the, the congregation there. But in this one, Paul put them under oath before the Lord to read the letter to the rest of the believers. There seems to have been some doubt in his mind that they would do so. And it's possible that this is connected to his desire for the Thessalonians to respect the leaders of their church. In some of the commentaries I read this week, there is the suggestion that he feared the Jews who had tried to stop him and his ministry in Thessalonica might have somehow infiltrated the church there and were planning to sort of disrupt everything. That's all speculation, of course, but it does make some sense of why he would write this. Now, there's also the idea that reading his letter aloud to the entire group would keep it from being used to gain power over any of them. If everyone has access that no one can use it for that purpose. Now this is something that has been an issue throughout church history. For the longest time only, the church had the scriptures, which meant they could twist them however they needed to and no one would know the difference. Now this is actually part of what changed with Luther and the Protestant Reformation when he employed Gutenberg's printing press to make scripture more accessible to the people. So it's entirely possible that Paul was just way ahead of the curve on this. Ultimately, we just don't know. But I would say this. This just highlights the importance of everyone having access to Scripture and engaging with each other about the Scriptures regularly. This is why we have a Bible study every Wednesday evening. And I understand if some of you can't make it for whatever reasons. But you should still be having conversations about Scripture with someone. Whether it's with your spouse or family members, or if you meet up with a neighbor along the fence line one, once a week to talk about a chapter. Whatever it looks like for you, so long as everyone is engaging with others concerning Scripture. That's what the basic idea here is. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with a college freshman in my ministry with the students that... They grew up in the church, and yet they don't have any idea what's in the Bible because they've never really read it for themselves. They just believed whatever they were told because they trusted whoever told them. And it's important to trust others. You can't be wrong about that. But even the Berean believers went to Scripture when Paul taught them. And sort, uh, it, it's sort of vital that we know our Bibles. It's just important. So as we wrap up Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians here, I think it's clear that his primary goal was to encourage these believers as they went through persecution to keep their eyes on the promise of Jesus and his return. To be aware of the things that he was writing in this letter, to sort of learn that new language 
that new culture of the kingdom of God that they were becoming a part of, to live as citizens of that kingdom because Jesus truly was Lord instead of Caesar. And there was no power Rome could threaten them with that was more powerful than the life and light and love of Jesus who had risen from the grave and would return soon. So may we follow in their footsteps. May we learn from the Thessalonians and what Paul wrote to them and apply that to our lives. And may we learn the language and culture of the kingdom of God and live that way as well. Will you pray with me?